This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and Law.com. Welcome back to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Gina Polo, a shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney in our Miami, Florida office. Today, we're thrilled to welcome a very exciting guest to the podcast and a timely one, too, with the 2021 Major League Baseball season in full swing. We have with us today Ashwin Krishnan, Vice President and General Counsel with the Miami Marlins. Ashwin has been with the Marlins for more than 10 years now, starting out as an Associate Counsel before becoming VP and GC in late 2017. During that time, he's overseen an ownership change and, interestingly enough, went from being on the seller side to the buyer's side overnight something that we'll talk about a little bit later and that's very rare in the world of M&A. So Ashwin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And uh, when you reached out with this uh, idea, I was very excited and I'm glad we were able to do it. Hopefully people find this valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we definitely have plenty to talk about when it comes to managing legal for an internationally renowned company, let alone one with sports world eyes and ears on it every single day. So we're excited to talk to Ashwin about his experience. So Let's get started with a very simple question, Ashwin. What are the biggest differences between being general counsel of a professional sports team versus a more traditional type of GC role? So I think there's a lot of similarities in terms of managing various different departments, managing internal employees, issues, contracts, things that any business has in terms of having perhaps a finance department or having a sales department. I think the biggest differences come in the area of media scrutiny. You know, we're a fairly small company employee-wise in terms of having somewhere between 150, 200 regular full-time business employees, but yet we're in the newspaper every day, whether it's a game or whether it's the off-season and we're signing players or involved in trade discussions or whatever stories may be out there. We're fairly public in that nature in the sense that we have writers assigned to cover us every day. We have newspapers that write about us or speculate about what we may be doing or what we should be doing. And so for a fairly small company, we do have a lot of media coverage. We do have a lot of interest in what we're doing from the general public. And so that just adds another layer to every decision we make, every action we take, and just having to think about how this is going to play out in the news or how people may perceive something or what may be the reaction amongst a certain segment of our population, a certain segment of our fan base or elected officials or however it may play out. And so I think that's just another layer of scrutiny, another layer of analysis we have to do in every decision we make and every relationship we have to manage. The other element I will add is players themselves. They technically are employees of the Marlins, but they're not like normal employees. When folks think of their normal employees, they think of folks that they can you know, give them a handbook, folks that they can sit them down and have performance reviews with. Those aren't things we, we get to do with our players, unfortunately. They're protected by a union, the Major League Baseball Players Association, which we can talk about later, but just creates a whole set of issues in terms of how to deal with them, how to manage issues that arise. There's a whole set of rules governing how we interact with them and how we can you know discipline them, how they get promoted, how they get paid. That whole set of issues is just managed through a layer of dealing with a unionized workforce, which again, many people deal with the unionized workforce. Ours is a little different because again, that level is really at the MLB, MLBPA level. And we just have to kind of deal with the set of rules that are established. So I think those are the two biggest things that strike me as different from a normal GC, a normal company uh, legal department. 
What are your interactions that you have to have specifically because you are the Miami Marlins with, you know, the county and the city? So I can talk about this from two different ways. So one, from a legal perspective, we have a very long-term operating agreement with the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County that governs our use here of this ballpark, which is now uh, Lone Depot Park, uh, as many of you may have seen. But the ballpark itself is owned by the county. Um, the, the land, the parking lots surrounding the ballpark are owned by the city of Miami. So we have a very close relationship with the city and the county in terms of managing both day-to-day issues that come up with, with the parking garages or the ballpark, uh, but also the long-term capital improvements, capital plan, how we manage the area. And so that ties into my other area here, which is um, I oversee the public affairs uh, department here at the Marlins. And that relates to kind of long-term planning of what we're, you know, our overall relationship with our our elected officials, the county and the city, and just kind of what our overall plan is here for, for this area. You know, there's certainly issues that we constantly work on with them in terms of mobility, parking, traffic, those types of things that we want to do everything we can to make this a, a great experience for our fans and those that come here. And so that's kind of an ongoing dialogue we have with them on various issues that come up from time to time and what we can do to just improve the overall guest experience here at Lone Depot Park. During COVID, you know, the ballpark itself has been used as a site for vaccinations. How did that all develop? How did that come about? Yeah, so I mean, I think this goes back to last March, which I can't, you know, can't even believe it's been over a year of dealing with COVID, but uh, here we are. So, you know, as soon as the baseball season was suspended and we knew that we weren't going to be playing home games for a period of time, I think immediately we as a leadership group really said, okay, what can we do to help the community? I mean, I think that's, you know, the first instinct we had, which was, okay, what, what we have a big site here. We have a lot of employees that want to be active and want to help out. What can we do to, to help out, um, help the community here deal with this crazy pandemic that at that time we didn't even know, you know, the parameters or duration or how this is going to affect us. And so one of the first things we were able to do was work with our local officials here at the county, uh, work with the state and figure out, you know, how initially we started out as a testing site, which I think many have seen now has transitioned to vaccination sites, which we're doing both here still, but also just through our community foundation, we've been able to deliver over 800,000 meals, COVID testing, food distributions, mask distributions, just you name it. I think our focus has really been what can we do to, to help out the community? What can we do to really be here as part of the community as a great corporate citizen and someone who really cares and is vested in this community? So yeah, the, the testing site and the vaccination site are a big part of what we're doing. Um, but you know, it's just, it's one piece of our overall effort in the community. You mentioned the Marlins Foundation. I'm not sure how familiar folks are with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when this new ownership group came in in October 2017, one of their pillars and one of the first things they said was, how can we get more involved in the community? That's something they want. They wanted to really build that relationship with the community, with the nonprofits here, with the community leaders here, and really figure out what we can do to, to make an impact here in South Florida. So we hired an executive director, Rocky Aguskiza, who has also now become our vice president of diversity, equity, inclusion, another issue that's very important to us and I'm sure we'll discuss later. That's really been a focus of how we can enhance our efforts and impact in this community. During COVID, it's been food distributions. It's been masks, handing out masks, providing testing, providing vaccination uh, site access, just a variety of different pillars. You know, one of the things we did last fall during the election was distribute hot meals to folks waiting to vote. Just uh, across a variety of different pillars, this foundation has been very active in terms of, you know, how they can make an impact throughout the community. Youth baseball initiatives with RBI, health, wellness, education, you name it across each of the pillars. Our foundation is very active. I think we all look forward to a day when uh, we can get back to more in-person activities, in-person events. And I know they're going to be at the front lines of that. They have been throughout this pandemic and will continue to be on the front lines of helping our community in their time of need.
Wonderful. Wonderful. You mentioned uh, the transition in ownership. So you were obviously a big part of an ownership change with the Marlins. I'm sure many of the listeners have been involved with M&A before, but probably not at the level that you were with Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter taking over the franchise. So what was that experience like? What was your role before and after that sale? Well, uh, as many have been through, as you alluded to, it was a pretty crazy process, a very public one, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in terms of affairs that affect the Marlins. From my recollection, you know, February of 2017 was when news kind of became public about the Marlins being for sale. And uh, that's really when um, the fun started for me. You know, there were a whole host of different ownership groups and folks moving between different groups and, you know, a lot of public speculation and intrigue going on with how this process was going to play out. And through it all, you know, my role as as in-house counsel to our previous ownership group was to, you know, help prepare documents, help navigate bidders through the process, and, you know, ultimately help that group sell the team, which is what their goal was. And as I mentioned, you know, it was a very complicated public process with all sorts of folks coming in and out and, you know, jockeying for position in this process. And then ultimately in August of, of 2017, a, a deal was reached with the Sherman Jeter group. And then over the next couple of months, we again, prepared a bunch of documents and worked with, you know, their lawyers and their group to help get everything finalized. And we closed in early October of 2017. So, you know, it was a fairly intense process of getting documents ready of, of just kind of navigating that group through the process and everything they need to do. There's a lot of MLB approvals and MLB involvement in a, in a sale of a team. Um, and so just navigating all the different um, hurdles and, and issues that needed to be uh, worked through uh, was kind of my focus in terms of uh, getting the prior ownership group to the point where the team could be sold and funds could be transferred and all of that. What's interesting, as you noted, was essentially that day, October 2nd, the second funds were transferred from the buyer to the seller. I became essentially the lawyer for the buyer now. Um, I essentially switched sides you know, that minute, it was a very interesting getting to know you period and um, explaining who I was in terms of, you know, what I could do and uh, really my capabilities and role here. Um, you know, I think they might have had through their lawyers, at least some uh, idea of who I was and, and what my role was. But obviously, when you buy a team and buy any organization, and you want to know, you know, what you have to work with and who the employees are and what they can do, really kind of the first few months were a very you know, intense period of evaluation, you know, I think getting to know me, me getting to know them, understanding how I work and why I do things a certain way. And then ultimately, I hope to say, you know, sitting more than three years here later, that they're comfortable with what I what, what I do and how I do it and, and my style and my management of the legal department, and ultimately, you know, continue to, to continue on in the role um, as head of the legal department here. So, you know, very, very pleased and very grateful for this opportunity that had given me. And, you know, I think, Derek always says it, and I think it comes from, you know, his playing days, his mentality of, you know, you prove yourself, you earn your job every day. It's not something that, you know, you're given and you just assume you have. You really, you know, come to work every day fighting for your job, showing that you belong here, that you deserve it. And I think that's a great mentality to have um, for all of us every day coming to work to say, you know, this, I'm going to show why I earned my job. I'm going to show why I deserve to be in my job um, every single day. So that's kind of the approach and attitude I've taken here. And uh, so far, it served me well. So I know that you manage a lot of things um, as GC, but one of the few aspects that people think about when it comes to sports team is immigration. But in an international sports like baseball, it's a constant. And full disclosure for the listeners, this is what we at Buchanan uh, help the Marlins with. So can you talk to us about some of the complexities that you face with the Marlins in terms of immigration, visas, travel, all that sort of stuff? 
Yeah, I'm going to call my outside counsel, Gina Polo, and have her um, <laughs> pinch it for me. No, um, obviously, we'll defer to uh, to you, Gina, as you're the expert, as you mentioned, in this area. And um, very grateful for all the assistance you're able to offer us in navigating these, these complex waters. But yeah, I mean, we as folks who follow baseball know, um, you know, baseball is an international sport, international game with talent, both in terms of players and staff all over the world. And so we are, you know, looking like any other team to get better every day and bring in the best players to our organization. And so, um, you know, we're, we're out there scouting talent in, in Latin America, in Venezuela, in the Dominican Republic, uh, but also in, in the Far East. Uh, you think of talent that's come from Japan, Taiwan, Korea. So we're, we're all over the world, essentially, looking for the best players and the best staff members. Um, and, and, you know, that, that creates a variety of issues. Um, you, you, in, a, in a simple case, you can think of, okay, we have a player in the Dominican Republic. We sign him. He's at our Dominican Academy. How do we now bring him to the U.S. to go through our player development system? And, and eventually get to the major leagues. But it also involves, you know, our coaching staff. Um, you know, you want to find the best staff to help your players grow and develop. Um, and so not only the scouts that are performing work in some of these countries, but coaches that you want to bring from those countries. So, you know, you know, you think of a hypothetical example, you may have a great hitting coach in Venezuela who you want to bring to the Dominican Republic to work with certain players. And then after a couple of years, when those players uh, come to the U.S. and maybe are in, in, in ready to almost be, you know, in the major leagues or somewhere in the minor leagues, you may want to bring that coach over who's worked with them and knows them well. So now you've got this coach who's a Venezuela, uh, Venezuelan citizen who's spent some time working the DR who now needs to work in the U.S. Um, and, and that's where we say, okay, um, you know, this, this, this is important to the organization and something we want to do, but how do we do this? How do we navigate all the immigration issues, the visas, the visa issues, the permits, all of that? And that's when uh, we usually pick up the phone and say, hey, Gina, we have a situation. Uh, what do we need to do? So how have you guys been affected as an organization, as a baseball team, with all of the restrictions that you've had over the course of the past 12 months of not having the ability to, to travel as freely as you're accustomed to? Yeah, it's created a lot of complications for us from uh, from a scouting and player development perspective. You know, obviously our guys like to get eyes on everybody, like to work with people hands-on. The travel protocols by themselves and not being able to go to certain countries or having restrictions on what you need to do to go to certain countries and come back has made things very complicated. Obviously, video is great and, you know, like all of us have learned Zoom and Teams and all that are great for, for, for video conferences or looking at video of players, but it's not the same as kind of being out there in the field and, and watching players and working with them to develop them. The biggest challenge has been, you know, that element of just being there on, on site, working with people hand in hand as you navigate these, these challenges. As you know as well, you know, certain availability of immigration offices, of certain availability of consulates, being able to get appointments in person, that all of that has been affected as well and just made it much more complicated. I mean, there was a period of time, you know, last, I want to say April, May, June, where, you know, we weren't even coming into the office. So mail was coming here, people's uh, petitions, people's, their people's visas, things like that. We weren't able to get, you know, in a timely fashion sometimes, uh, you know, as we, as we would normally get. So that just creates issues. I mean, I, I don't think anybody could have planned for a pandemic like this, but there are certain kind of government processes and official processes that weren't ready for a pandemic in terms of not you know, not being used to people not being in an office or going, being able to go to an office where, um, you know, we've just had to try, try to work with different folks and find solutions where, where we can, because again, at the end of the day, we, we have a, we have a business to run and we have players that need to be where they need to be and coaches that need to be where they need to be. And it's, it creates challenges uh, when, when uh, bureaucratic processes, which may, they may not always understand, hold things up and, and then it makes life tough for us when we have to explain why certain things can't happen. 
So how has that changed, you know, when you have a player who is used to being here for the season and then going back home and then coming back and now the person stays here, you know, have there been changes that have been positive about that experience of having them sort of remained in lockdown, so to speak? Yeah, um, you know, of course, we want them to, you know, have the freedom to do what they want to do in the offseason, go home, see their families and all of that. But I think as you you alluded to there, there was an interesting wrinkle for us where folks, um, you know, the, the travel limitations, um, you know, essentially forced them to stay in here in, in South Florida, whether near our Jupiter complex or our Miami complex here. And that allowed for, you know, a greater greater development or greater eyes on them as they developed and trained. Um, so it was kind of an interesting dynamic. I almost think of like a summer camp where guys were able to kind of all be together, work on, um, you know, whatever they were working on, whether it was hitting, fielding, pitching, and work with our staff and, and have them all here. And I think that created an interesting dynamic for us where we said, wow, it's kind of, it's, it's really great to have, um, you know, everybody here together. And we've really done that in terms of trying to make our Jupiter where we have our, you know, our spring training, major league spring training, minor league spring training. And then, um, you know, now it's called the player development league. We have an affiliate down there, the Jupiter hammerheads, but turn that into a year round uh, player development complex. And we've got a great staff there that works with our players year round and really, you know, creates an incentive for these guys to potentially stay there year round and say, Hey, I want to work with the best staff and the best trainers and, and have my fellow players around me and my friends and really be there year round and say, this is the place to develop, this is the place to grow. And it's made it better for us as an organization, I, just in the sense that we're able to see these guys and be with them uh, year round, um, as opposed to, you know, in years past, when some guys may go home um, and may go abroad, you lose track of them a little bit for a couple of months. Of course, you check in and do what you can, but you lose track of them for a couple of months. You see them when they come back for, for spring training. But, um, you know, I think that's part of what we're doing to really develop a year round player development complex. So I know that you deal a lot with minor league players or players that have a lot of potential that are very young. So what are the things that you guys do as an organization to help them to use your word to develop? So, so I think when we talk about the word develop, I think it's important to specify here, you know, we're not just talking about develop as a baseball player. Obviously the skills are as a baseball player, are what, um, you know, initially attract us to draft or sign or um, bring someone into an organization. But I think we take a lot of pride in that once someone's in our organization, we really um, want them to develop as a human being first and foremost. That goes really into our Dominican, you know, our Dominican Academy where we sign a lot of our Latin American players. Um, you know, we've really revamped and developed an education program there to help these individuals, you know, develop as young men. These are 16 year old kids that come into this program and we want them to learn life skills, financial literacy, math skills, um, you know, basic English is a big one. One. A big priority of this organization has been to teach these individuals English and to also teach some of our U.S. players Spanish so that, you know, they're able to communicate because ideally at the end of the day, they're all going to be in the same clubhouse or going to be in the same team. We want them to be able to communicate with each other. So we think it's, you know, it's very important that they learn English, uh, this, the, the Spanish speaking folks learn English and the English speaking folks learn Spanish so they can communicate with each other. But also, you know, baseball may not work out for everyone that, that we've made them better off as human beings and able to lead successful lives um, because they are coming to us so young and, and we want to feel like we've done our part to help them develop and, and be successful members of the community, whatever their path may be, whether they stay with our organization, go to another organization, or maybe leave the game of baseball. So there's been a lot of focus with our player development system on that, on just developing them as well-rounded individuals, not just as baseball So players. unlike many other companies, sports teams work very closely with their competitors almost on a daily basis from organizing events to orchestrating trades to negotiations with networks and the players union that you mentioned earlier. 
How does this impact your role as general counsel? You know, it's interesting in the sense that we compete on the field with 29 other major league baseball clubs, but frankly, you know, we don't necessarily compete with each other on a variety of other elements, um, you know, in terms of bringing people into our building here in South Florida, you know, we're, we're looking to bring in fans to our building and have a great experience. We're not necessarily competing with the Arizona Diamondbacks or the New York Mets on that front. You know, it's very unlikely that somebody is looking to attend a game between I'm either going to fly to Arizona, attend a game, or, gonna, or fly to Miami to attend a game. It's not kind of like that. So we're able to collaborate with our fellow club council and MLB as a whole, you know, fairly frequently on, on important issues to us, you know, ticketing issues, what ticketing promotions we're offering, security, what are we doing? What are we allowing? How do we do security checks? You know, simple things like what legal system do you use to keep your documents organized? Things like that, where it's really helpful to have folks that are dealing with the same types of issues as you. Um, so I look at my 29 counterparts as folks that are probably my closest peer network in terms of whenever there's an issue, someone I can call and say, hey, you know what I'm dealing with? Hey, you know what we're, we're up against? You know, the the relevant considerations of the business we're in. And I find that to be tremendously useful because more than likely someone in the network has dealt with the issue you're facing and, or some kind of uh, similar issue and and can give you some guidance as to how they approached it or what they did um, and what considerations to take into account. So I've I've found that network to be tremendously useful um, just as a as a good backstop to say hey how you know how did you guys deal with this or how did you how did you work through this what what were some of the things you thought about and it just it turns out to be really useful for us because otherwise you know there's not too many other people I can call and say hey as outside counsel or you know in house at another type of corporation you know they may not deal with you know having fans come into their building and what you do for security checks, whether you wand them or uh, do hand searches or whatever, just may not be a, a, an issue that um, they face. I know when I call, you know, one of the 29 others, it's probably something they've thought about, probably something that's come across their desk at some point, And um, usually you can have a pretty uh, informed discussion. So I really appreciate that club council network and, and MLB as a whole. They're a great repository of information and can help us think through some of these issues. The Marlins made history last year when they hired the very first female general manager in major league history, Kim Ng. She also, she's also the first woman hired as a GM by any major professional men's team in North American sports. Even prior to her hiring, how important has diversity and inclusion been to the Marlins organization? Tremendously important. Um, you know, I think with this new ownership group that came in, uh, we have the first African-American CEO of a major league baseball team in Derek Jeter. We have an international ownership group um, with, with folks in, from other countries. I think diversity inclusion has been a tremendous priority of this organization, even before um, you know a lot of, of what happened last year happened with social justice and, um, and everything else that was going on in this country. Um, so I think it was already a big focus for us. I think last year just made it even more of a focus and even more of a flashpoint um, in terms of who we were as an organization. Um, you know, I know, I, I know Derek takes very seriously his role, um, you know, as, uh, as, as the first African-American CEO of a major league baseball team um, and, and take, and, and I think overall our management team takes very seriously our role in this community. We see ourselves as a leader and someone that others follow and look to when, when certain situations happen. And we want to make sure people know where we stand and what our values are. And, you know, I think when you look at our, our leadership team, I always marvel at this. We have just the faces we have on our team. We have a great representation of females. We have a great representation of, uh, of African-American males, of of Asians, um, you know, just across the, the of, of, of Latin Americans. Um, so we, we have 
um, great representation. And it's always a stark contrast when I go to, you know, MLB meetings or other sports, when I see their leadership teams, um, I'm very proud to work for the organization because of how, how seriously we've taken and, um, and, and ultimately what I look at the other faces I see when we have a leadership meeting or something of that nature. But also I think, you know, one of the biggest things we've done is really try to involve our staff in this whole, in, in, in this whole process. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of staff members that are, that are really um, passionate about these issues and we want to make sure they felt heard. So we did form a diversity inclusion belonging committee last year, um, you know, at the height of the, the social justice uh, pro protests and everything else. And, um, and really wanted to make sure that we took the pulse of our staff, had to give them a, a platform and an opportunity to um, voice their concerns, their thoughts, um, action plans, things like that, because we wanted to say that we're not only just going to talk about it, we're, but we want to come up with ideas. Um, the, the Feed the Polls initiative was something that came out of that group where we said, hey, you know, voting is really important, uh, providing access to voting and making sure people feel have food, water, whatever else they may need that that may help them, encourage them to vote, um, provide transportation to voting uh, locations, those types of things. That's something that came out of it and, and was, uh, you know, tremendous initiative for us. So, um, you know, it's something that we, we're very passionate about, something that we've involved our staff in just because we want them to feel like they have a voice and they're heard and they have a really a stake in what we're doing. Um, we don't want this to feel like this is the leadership group or, or, you know, one person or a group of people telling them this is what we're doing. We want them to feel like these ideas came from them and that they're representing and they talk to their fellow coworkers and bring these ideas as a group and committee forward. And then we can help them as a leadership team, you know, refine them and ultimately help carry out those ideas. So, um, you know, tremendously important uh, to us uh, before the hiring of Kim. And I think the Kim hiring just exemplifies that. And I always, you know, make a point to tell everyone that, you know, I'm extremely thrilled about Kim being hired because of her credentials. Um, you know, I think the, the, the trailblazing nature of it is great. And I, I, I'm very excited for what her impact means from all the folks. I mean, I think every person in the Marlins organization will tell you they got text messages, calls, emails from people from all walks of their life, like people I hadn't heard from, from, you know, decades that were just, you know, this somehow made it to their radar. People who don't follow baseball or sports. Somehow this made it to their radar. And so it was um, historic, trailblazing and unique. And I don't want to diminish the significance of that. But for me, I was just so excited given her background, her experience, her resume, um, you know, someone who's as accomplished as she has been to the places you know, the she's been references to. I heard from my own network of, of people that have worked with her was just tremendous. And so I was tremendously excited to bring that person, that resume, that experience into the organization. You know, it's only been about five months, but I've already worked with her on a couple different matters. And, uh, you know, I see how she thinks, how thoughtful she is, how persistent she is and, and, you know, very motivated. And I really am excited to work with her and continue to work with her. What sort of new developments and initiatives are you guys working on uh, with the Marlins? How are you working to grow the brand and reach more people both in Miami and beyond? A, a big focus of this new ownership group that came in was really building and rebuilding uh, relationships across the community. So whether that was corporate partners, elected officials, community leaders, nonprofit organizations, fans, um, you know, everybody in the community to really say, we're new in town here and, and we want to hear you, listen to you, hear what, you know, whatever's on your mind and then figure out how we can respond to those um, concerns, comments, whatever it is, and, and, um, and, and build a better relationship as the Marlins with each of those sectors of the community. You know, I think we're still in that process of listening, but at the same time, we're starting to move towards action. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately our focus is, is that is those relationships is maintaining, building and, and continue to grow those relationships. And we see that manifested across a couple different areas. So I think the first is just uh, providing the most affordable, entertaining, uh, 
great value experience we can here at Lone Depot Park. So we want everyone who comes here to really feel like, hey, no matter what my nature of my visit was, whether it was business, personal, family, whatever the reason I came to Lone Depot Park, I had a great experience. I thought it was good value. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's kind of one of our guiding principles is what can we do to make sure everyone comes here, has a great experience, it feels like they want to come back. Um, and we've talked about some of those, um, you know, the, the things we're working through there, parking, mobility, public transport, like those, how can we make it easier for people to come here? How can we make sure they have a good experience? Um, I think another element of that is really what we're doing across our larger network. So, you know, we're, many of us are here sitting in Miami and we focus on what's happening here at Lone Depot Park and what's happening here in Miami. But, you know, across our network, we've, we talked a little bit about our Dominican Academy. We've talked about our Jupiter Player Development Complex. We, with the new, org, the reorganization of the whole minor league system and the player development leagues, we now have affiliates, you know, mostly in Florida, across other, other places in Florida. Um, and we have, we have one in Beloit, we have one in Pensacola, we have a Jacksonville affiliate. And, and we want to make sure that, that both our players as they go through the system, but also our, our, our fans and, and everybody else who's following the system gets a consistent kind of feeling about the Marlins uh, across, um, across their whole development journey. Um, and, and so that, that really uh, manifests itself in terms of what we're doing um, to both enhance the experience for our players and staff, but also our fan base in terms of uh, drawing an affinity towards what we're doing in the Dominican Republic, how we expand and how we build a uh, better experience down there, uh, what we're doing in Jupiter, how we build and expand the experience there for everyone. Uh, and then now to our, through our affiliate network to make sure that um, it's a first class experience for our players, for our staff, for our fans. Uh, we want people to get excited about, you know, the players that are being brought into our system and how we develop them and follow them. And so they can kind of follow them from the moment they're drafted or signed uh, all the way to their hopeful major league debut and, and their major league career with us. So, you know, it's really a, a, a comprehensive process where we want, you know, to put a spotlight on the whole network and the whole um, pathway here and, and make everybody excited about, about that whole pathway. <clears throat> so we're getting close to the end of our show time here. We wanted to wrap things up with what we call in closing. So Ashton, I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions that are a little on the lighter side and ask that you respond quickly. Okay. Okay. So first one, if you had to choose what position on the baseball diamond would most closely represent your role as general counsel? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I would probably have to say catcher um just because i feel like many times as a general counsel you're kind of the quarterback or or um guiding different things going going on in the organization there's a bunch of competing different priorities and you essentially have to kind of manage all those different priorities manage those different issues uh the first baseman may be asking you for something the shortstop may be asking for something the center fielder may have something um you know you have to kind of manage the different um uh requests that come at you the different priorities and and ultimately figure out which one's important how to how to manage traffic uh you know i think in catchers manage uh, a lot of traffic on the base path. They manage traffic in terms of calling what they're doing for the pitcher, um, and and ultimately just kind of manage the game. Uh, you know, from a from a defensive perspective. And so I kind of see that in 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 terms of how we protect the organization, how we protect home. Uh, you know, that's that's ultimately our goal, and and we have to get you know various people involved and work with various people to to accomplish that objective. But ultimately, uh, we try to make sure the, the the right priorities are pursued and the the ultimate objective is is met. And that you're guarding home plate always. At all times. <laughs> okay. Uh, growing up, I'm sure you had your own favorite sports teams before the Marlins. What was your favorite team as a kid? 
So I grew up in San Diego, California. So obviously I uh, was attracted to the Padres and Tony Gwynn, but I will share that I also had an AL team. Uh, you know, I couldn't just kind of limit myself just to NL baseball. Um, I was a big fan of the Mariners uh, and King Griffey Jr. was my guy there. So um, it was, uh, yeah, I followed, I followed, I mean, I followed every baseball team very closely, uh, but those were my teams growing up and, and the teams I was passionate about. So probably about as far away as you can get from, from the Miami Marlins in terms of geography, but, uh, but those were them. So in terms of geography, uh, I'm sure that you get to travel a decent amount in your role as GC. So what's your favorite city to travel to in the MLB? Uh, yeah, um, so of course San Diego, that's home. That's where my, my, my family is and excited to always go home and see them. Uh, and Petco Park's an absolutely beautiful park. Um, but taking that away because that's kind of uh, a cheating a little bit. I would actually say San Francisco. Um, you know, I think I think their ballpark is absolutely beautiful. It's a great experience, and 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 there's a lot. Every time I go there, I learn. I think when I when I come back to uh, Lone Depot Park now um, of what we can do better here. I, I really, you know, I love the atmosphere they have around the ballpark. Um, you know, everywhere you go, you see orange and black, and you you really get a sense of everyone's. Uh, you know, on a game day, everyone's tuned in, everyone's ready. Uh, they're, they're focused on the game, and I and I really want to hopefully bring that here one day to have that kind of experience where uh, everyone in our vicinity is is uh, tuned into what we're doing and uh, excited about uh, uh, the, the game that day and just you know create that great uh, game day atmosphere here. Okay uh, I think that we all miss things that we used to do before COVID-19 so once this is all over what's the first thing that you're going to do that you can't do right now? Oh, I mean, I, you've touched on it with a couple of these other questions. It's traveling. I mean, I love to travel. I mean, I, yeah, well, going, going abroad is, is um, literally one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, you know, I've visited over, I think, 80 countries now. It's one of my passions just to go, you know, get on a plane and go somewhere. So uh, that will be the first thing I do uh, as soon as I get fully vaccinated and everything is open again, uh, other than domestic travel, um, you know, looking to, I don't, I don't know where yet, but uh, we'll be an international trip somewhere. It's just something I've, I've really missed and uh, I'll always look forward to. Wonderful. I know this is probably a, a bit of a difficult question, but because you've been there for a long time, but what is your most memorable moment with the Marlins? There's so many, it's hard to narrow it down. If I really try to think back over the 11 years I've been here, I would say um, the day we opened what was then Marlins Park, now Lone Depot Park, um, April 4th, 2012, just because that was such a momentous day in this franchise's history. There had been a search for a ballpark, a permanent home for the Marlins for some time. And, and I had joined in September of 2010, um, you know, a little bit after the ballpark deal was approved, but there was so much we did in that two year or so period to really get ready for, for, for the opening of this ballpark and everything it took to get this ballpark ready, you know, just to have that celebration, to have that culmination of all the work we put in to actually open this building where I now come to work every day and thousands of fans are able to enjoy uh, every night uh, that we have a game and just see the, what an impact this ballpark has had on the community and this area and um, what we hope it will have, you know, even more of an impact going forward as we bring more other events here, um, as we continue to expand what we can do with the COVID protocols and have more fans here and just grow the Marlins brand in this community. So um, it's just a symbol to me of, of a lot of hard work and what went into getting this place open and, and up and running. And then now every time, you know, as I come into work every day, kind of look back and say, wow, like, you know, you, I was here on that first day when we opened and, um, you know, every day since then, as we continue to build the experience and the opportunities here. So yeah, that's kind of the moment I look back to and say that was a, a great day. And, you know, every day since then we continue to build on that. Excellent.
Excellent. And I, I know that I've, I've been to the park many times and I, the feeling that you described when you went to the other park in, in California, I mean, I get that feeling when I go there, everybody is decked out and in their Marlins here and they're really excited about the game and, and the things that you guys have done with the park. So big congratulations to you there. Ashwin, so thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was great to hear more about you, your career, the exciting future of the Marlins. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Legal Innovators Interview Series. Please be sure to join us next time. Until then, I'm Gina Polo, shareholder at Buchanan Ingersoll & Rooney. Thank you all for listening.